You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Bear Bryant, a famous college football coach at the University of Alabama for about 25 years or so, once quipped about the importance of offense and defense. And he said, offense sells tickets, but defense what? Wins championships. Defense wins championships. Something that Penn State fans are lamenting. They did not have more defense yesterday. I know that's a very raw, sore spot for many of you in the room this morning. Sharing the gospel, of course, is is much different, uh, much more significant than college football. Uh, But it's really interesting to note that as we enter these final chapters of the book of Acts, there's a pivot As Luke writes, the author of this book, as he writes, there's a pivot from offense to defense. For the past eight or nine chapters or so, uh, the emphasis has been offense or the advance of the gospel. Uh, And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, if you've read it before in your life, if you think about Acts, you, you most often think about offense, how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we now have followed Paul on his three missionary journeys around the Mediterranean world. Uh, taking the gospel to all of these cities and towns, planting churches in those places, uh, establishing elders for those churches, uh, and then raising funds uh, to bring back to Jerusalem for the, the church there that's impoverished and suffering from a famine. But beginning with today's text, uh, the rest of the book of Acts really emphasizes defense or defending the gospel. Uh, between now and the end of the book, Paul is going to be put on trial no less than five times. Five times. We'll actually look at the first two of those together today. Uh, And as we do today and over these coming weeks, be sure to note how important defending the gospel is. Mission, the, the work of God, the work that he sends us out to continue as his people, is not just about how many people hear the gospel. It's also about helping people see that this audacious news about Jesus is actually credible and reliable and true. Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, seems really intent for us and other readers of his to get this. Of the roughly 1,000 verses that are in the book of Acts, 226 we could classify as missionary verses or gospel offense about you know, the gospel spreading to these places around the, the first century Mediterranean world. But 239, slightly more, are what we would call prison verses, about the time that Paul or the other apostles spend imprisoned or on trial. Defense, gospel defense. One scholar named Daryl Bach interprets that this way. He says, Paul, the defender of the faith, is as important as, if not more important, than Paul, the preacher of the faith. So his defense is as important, if not more important, than his preaching. And as we observe Paul's defense in the first two of these final five trials, I want to start actually with the words of another apostle. A few years after these events, the apostle Peter will go on to write, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's 1 Peter three fifteen. Now, whether Peter had The Apostle Paul in mind when he penned those words is unknown. Uh, But we certainly see these words 
embodied in Paul and his example even in this text today. In all of these unplanned moments, Paul is giving a defense for the hope that is in him. So how does he go about doing that? How does he defend the gospel? And what specifically is the hope that is within Paul? I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 21. I'll start in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, in other words, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul then goes on to recount his conversion experience on the road to Damascus in the next couple verses there. So go ahead and skip down to verse 17, Acts 22, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, him being Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? 
Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Blessed Lord, who caused all of your scripture, all of Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that now we would read, mark, and inwardly digest your word. That we would embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you hold out to us, which you have offered us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. We'll consider uh, this text today in two parts. Paul before the crowd and then Paul before the council. So first, Paul before the crowd, before the crowd. And just to back up uh, for a quick second, let's remember how Paul ended up in this situation. Uh, He finally arrived in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, who is now the the leader of the church in Jerusalem, told Paul to purify himself at the temple, to, to take on a public gesture to show his faithfulness because his faithfulness had been called into question. And Paul is just about finished with those seven days of purification when some Jews from Asia who are there in Jerusalem, they recognize him and they stir up the crowd. They wrongly assume that Paul has brought a Gentile man, an Ephesian man named Trophimus, into the temple. And so Paul is beaten, and as we read last week, would have actually been killed by this crowd, except the Roman military leader, the tribune, intervenes. So, It's a public gesture of faithfulness and a bad assumption that lead Paul to this first of his five, final five trials. And as far as we know, um, he actually never gets the chance to correct that bad assumption. He never actually gets to share, hey, um, I never brought Trophimus into the temple. I never actually did that. But there's a second bad assumption that happens here at the beginning of the text today that he does get to correct. The, The tribune assumes that Paul is this Egyptian man who was recently there in Jerusalem and led a revolt. But when Paul speaks to him in Greek, the tribune realizes, oh, I got, I got the wrong guy. This is someone else entirely. And that's actually what opens up an opportunity for Paul to address the crowd. In his defense to the crowd then, Paul is really stressing two huge points. Two huge points. First, that he is still a devoted, loyal Jewish man that he has not abandoned the faith of his fathers, that he has not forsaken the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. Rather, everything Paul believes, everything that he has been proclaiming and living in light of is the continuation and the fulfillment of that very same faith. There's a few ways we, we hear Paul stress that in his speech, in his defense to the crowd. He first says, I was brought up in Jerusalem. This is where I had my formative years. We're here learning about the, the law of God at the temple. Gamaliel was my rabbi. We met Gamaliel. If you've been studying Acts with us, we met Gamaliel back in Acts chapter 5. He's a widely respected Pharisee that served on that Jewish high council. He had a great reputation among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And Paul's saying, that guy was my mentor. That was my tutor. I learned from Gamaliel. Paul says, I was zealous for God. How zealous, you ask? Well, as some of you in this crowd probably even remember, I was the one who tracked down and persecuted Christians. I was both the bounty hunter and the DA and kind of the executioner. I stood by giving approval to the people who put Stephen to death years ago. As Paul continues, he goes on to share his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And we didn't read it today because we looked at it in depth back in Acts chapter 9. But it is significant, and and Paul shares it here as part of his defense. This was not Paul trying to abandon the faith of his fathers. It was as he was zealously pursuing that faith and trying to live in light of that, that God changed the course of his life. A few other emphases in these verses stress that Paul is a devoted, loyal Jewish man. He highlights that Ananias in Damascus, the one who God used to heal Paul's blindness, Ananias was a devout Jewish man. He was well spoken of by the Jewish people there. So Paul's saying it wasn't just a random guy that God used to heal me. It was a well-respected, devout Jewish man there. And then when he eventually does return to Jerusalem, where does Paul have this vision? Where does he receive this commission from Jesus to go to the Gentiles? It's in the temple. It's as he's praying in the temple, the place that everyone now is accusing him of, of desecrating. And Paul is saying, no, no, I'm still pursuing the God of my fathers. I'm still seeking faithfulness to him. I'm still zealous for his name. Related to this, uh, the second point that Paul is really stressing in his speech to the crowd is that any of the changes to his faith, the, the continuity and fulfillment, is not something that he just made up. That God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, revealed this to Paul. That Jesus quite literally stopped Paul in his tracks on the way to Damascus. That, that it was Jesus who spoke to him in the temple, in God's own house. So Paul is saying to this crowd, hey, I am not making this new stuff up. I was not looking to, you know, explore other religions. I wasn't just kind of exploring spirituality. I wasn't trying the whole Jesus thing out. I was 110% in on the faith of my fathers, of our fathers, until the God of our fathers radically and supernaturally intervened. Now, we don't know where Paul would have taken his defense from this point. Because as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, he's interrupted. He's cut off. Something you'll notice as you look at the book of Acts, very few people actually get to finish their speeches. Everybody gets interrupted in this book. Everybody gets interrupted. They really needed in the first century some like Robert's Rules of Order. Or if you're like from a Presbyterian tradition, we love the phrase decently and in order. They needed some Presbyterians in the first century. They needed things done decently and in order. Let the man finish his speech. But here's the real source of, of the Jews' objection to Paul and to his defense. They hate the Gentiles. 
Or if they don't outright hate them, they at least consider themselves far superior to them. And so as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, this thought that a Gentile, without first becoming a Jew, could then become part of God's people, and given that same favored status from Yahweh, from the one true God that they've had, that they've had as the the chosen people of God for centuries, that thought was abominable to a first century Jewish person. Jesus actually experienced the the same thing in Nazareth, his hometown, in Luke chapter 4. Just like this crowd with Paul, everybody is tracking along with him, listening intently, excited to hear what Jesus has to say, until Jesus hints that God loves Gentiles too. Mentions, hey, in the Old Testament, the days of the prophets, there were a lot of widows in Israel among the chosen people of God, but God actually showed up and miraculously blessed some Gentile widows. And just like here in Acts with Jesus, the speech gets cut short and the crowd becomes murderous, tries to kill Jesus. But this is a central aspect of the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, the dividing walls of hostility that once separated people and groups of people from one another, those walls have been broken down. Those walls have been broken down. And so if you're going to defend the gospel, you have to defend this, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. The one way to be reconciled with the one true God is through the finished work of the one mediator, Jesus Christ. So church, I want you to see this morning the incredible continuity that there is between the Jewish faith and Christianity. See the incredible continuity that Paul is even defending, that Paul is proclaiming in his defense here. Do we see that as our own spiritual heritage? Do we see that as our own lineage, that we stand on the shoulders of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's their, their faith that is ours now through the work of Jesus. And at the same time, do you see that Jesus fulfills, that it's not exactly the same. That now, regardless of your ancestors and your pedigree and regardless of your background, this good news is for all. It's for all people. That's the substance, really, of Paul's defense before the crowd, that the same God, the one true God, is now accessible to all through the finished work of Christ. So that's Paul before the crowd. Second, let's look at Paul before the council the council. Uh, Since that, you know, if you can even call it a trial, it's more of like a speech before the crowd, but that trial really resolved nothing. The Roman tribune attempts a different approach the very next day. Uh, It's clear to him now at this point, this is a a religious dispute between different groups of, of Jewish people. And so now he commands the Jewish high council. He says, hey, get together, assemble the whole council, and I'm going to bring Paul before you, and we're going to see if you can get to the the heart of the matter, see what's going on with Paul. And if you think Paul got cut short by the crowd, it's nothing compared to how short he gets cut by the council. He gets all of one sentence in, one sentence before the high priest interrupts him and commands the people standing near him to strike him in the face, hit him in the mouth. Now, why the command to to strike Paul like that? Well, when Paul says here, you know, I have lived my whole life before God in good conscience. What Paul means is that as a Christian, he's still a faithful Jew. That's what he's in essence saying. As a Christian, I'm still a faithful Jew. I'm still serving the same God with a clear conscience. 
See, Paul was always zealous for God. He's always wholeheartedly doing what he truly believes to be faithful and right. But to the Jewish leaders, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Just as this same council, certainly different people by this time, some years later, but this same Jewish high council once charged Jesus with blasphemy for making himself equal with God, when Paul, in essence, makes Christianity equal with the Jewish faith and says, I'm still faithful to God, I'm still just doing the same thing I've always done, just with new insight about the fulfillment of Jesus, to them, to the council, this is the same blasphemy. So once again, we're seeing Paul is intent not only to help the Jewish people, but the Jewish leaders see that trusting in Jesus is really the natural progression. It is the fulfillment of their own ancient faith. After being struck on the mouth, after snapping uh, at the high priest, and then admitting he was wrong to, to do that, Paul changes his approach. Likely aware, because it's now happened to him so many times, that he's not going to be given a whole lot of time before he's interrupted again. He goes straight for the heart of the matter. Look again at chapter 23, verse 6. Brothers, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Luke, the author of this book, writing primarily to a non-Jewish or Gentile audience, he helps us explain a little bit. He explains to to help us understand uh, the Jews were not one homogenous group. The Jewish council even was made up of two primary groups. There were the Sadducees who rejected supernatural things like the resurrection and angels and spirits. And there were the Pharisees who affirmed and believed in those things. So when Paul says here, hey, here's the real issue, guys. I believe that God raises the dead. That immediately opens up this rift between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and so much so that that a shouting match quickly turns violent. And again, it looks like Paul might be killed, torn to pieces by the council. And so for the third time now, the Roman tribune has to intervene to get Paul out of there. The tribune saves Paul three different times from getting killed in the course of these events. So when it's over, in the second of Paul's final five trials, he says, as far as we're aware, three sentences. That's the totality of his defense at his second trial. Now, over the years, uh, some have insisted that Paul was just exploiting the rift between Pharisees and Sadducees. This was essentially just a tactic to get everybody fired up and fighting so he could kind of like tiptoe out the back door and get off, get off the hot seat for a second. I don't remember which of the Ocean's movies it was, the Ocean's Eleven kind of series. It's the one with the Fabergé egg where they're trying to steal that, and they're on a train, and they have a guy wearing a Yankees hat, and they have a guy wearing a Red Sox hat, and they, they get them to kind of fight with each other that kind of creates this whole stir, and then that's when they steal the egg. I know that's raw. That's real raw this week for Yankees fans in the room. It's like a, a rift that's open again. But some people think that's what Paul's doing. They're just, he's just dropping a line out there to get everybody fighting with each other so he can, he can get out of the way. But with Paul, this actually is not a distraction, even if it ends up being one. He actually believes this, and not as some kind of tangential, non-essential issue. If he wanted just to distract people, he could have said, hey, I believe in angels. How many angels fit on the head of a pin? He could have dropped some like philosophy 101 bomb and gotten the Pharisees and the Sadducees to fight each other over something much less consequential. But he says this because the resurrection of the dead is central, foundational 
to the good news of Jesus. If he's going to get interrupted for making his defense every five seconds, then he might as well use the one or two sentences he does get in to raise the pivotal issue. And it's incredibly effective. It gives the Pharisees pause. You know, what, what if, they start to say, what if Paul really did get a revelation from God? What if, what if he's right? And, and, and that's true. It's actually similar to what Paul's mentor, that, that famous Pharisee Gamaliel, said back in Acts chapter 5 when the apostle Peter and John were on trial. He said, hey, if this is of God, we do not want to find ourselves opposing him. We better wait and, and hear this out and see if Paul's telling the truth. You see, some people are nearer to God's kingdom than others. And the Pharisees, at least in this moment, understanding that God has supernatural power to send angels and spirits, even to bring people back from the dead, the Pharisees are far nearer to God's kingdom than the Sadducees. And if we look through the gospel accounts in our Bibles, if we look at the history of the early church, the Jewish people who put their faith in Jesus are almost always Pharisees. They're almost always from this group of of Jews. Uh, Nicodemus is one famous example, John chapter 3, of a Pharisee who was near to the kingdom of God. A Pharisee, of course, though, is not automatically a Christian. Like Paul, who was a Pharisee, before the Damascus Road, uh, a Pharisee still has the formidable obstacle of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promised Messiah. But the fact that Pharisees believe that God resurrects people means that Pharisees are that much closer to acknowledging Jesus' resurrection and seeing him as that fulfillment. So a parallel to this in our day might be uh, the difference between a religious person and an atheist. Uh, A religious person or a spiritual person who is looking already outside of himself or outside of herself for meaning and purpose and significance in life. That person in that way is nearer to the kingdom of God than someone who thinks there is no inherent meaning to life. There is nothing outside myself. And there are often moments where we can affirm that kind of common ground that we have with such people. We might not agree, and certainly in some moments we will not agree, with everything that person believes. But in defending the gospel, we can find and affirm, in many cases, significant overlapping areas where where that person's beliefs lines up with the good news of Jesus. And it's even a great starting point for dialogue and conversation when we can find that common ground. Finding common ground is is one of several implications or or principles that we can draw from Paul's defense of the gospel here in this text. Another one is that in defending the gospel, we should use everything at our disposal. We should use everything at our disposal. In just this passage, Paul uses languages, his citizenship, and his insider religious knowledge. So languages, as we read, he speaks Greek to the Roman tribune, And then he speaks what Luke calls the Hebrew language, uh, which most scholars believe was Aramaic. That was the language that most first century Jewish people spoke uh, at this time and place. Aramaic, when he speaks to the crowd. And in both of those instances, it immediately earns him a hearing that he would not have otherwise had. Uh, The tribune recognizes, oh, he's not the Egyptian that led a revolt. I should listen to this guy. I'm going to give him a platform now to speak to the crowd. And it endears him to the crowd, think about this, they were about to kill him seconds ago. 
Not like days ago, seconds ago, they were about to kill him. Now, hearing him speak in, a, in their heart language, in their own language, they quiet down and they listen to what he has to say. So knowing the context and knowing the people in any given context, that's a huge help in defending the gospel. It helps us not only know what to say, but how to say it in a way that gives the gospel the greatest chance of being heard and of being understood by the, those who are there. Paul then also, in this text, uses his citizenship. He has that at his disposal and he uses that. When the tribune is about to have Paul examined, quote-unquote examined, by flogging, uh, he, pay, he plays the Roman citizen card. He has rights that protect him from that kind of examination. Now, nowhere in the course of Paul's ministry do we get the impression that Paul is an entitled man. We don't get the impression that he's walking around everywhere he goes, flaunting his pedigree and his citizenship and the rights that he has as a Roman citizen. But in some moments of extreme need like this one, and especially where it can aid his defense of the gospel, he uses the gift that he, that he has of his Roman citizenship. He, he, uh, he uses that for, for his advantage. He does the same thing actually back in Acts 16 when he's unlawfully beaten and thrown in prison in Philippi. It's actually after he goes through all of that, they're trying to kind of usher him out of Philippi quietly, like, hey, sorry, we didn't realize you're a Roman citizen. You just go ahead and head out quietly. He's like, actually, no, you're going to publicly apologize for throwing me in prison because I'm a Roman citizen. Now, in our time and place, we have some of these same protections. And there are ways that we can flaunt them, There are ways we can use the the freedoms, the protections we have in in ways that damage our witness for Jesus. That happens. But the freedom of religion, for example, and the freedom of speech that you and I are afforded, as most of us at least, citizens of this country, those are incredible gifts. Those are incredible assets for the sake of proclaiming and defending the good news of Jesus. And when we're in moments like this, we should use them. We should use them. The third thing Paul uses to his advantage here is insider religious knowledge. As we read there, it it helps to know not only what you believe, but what other people around you believe. And Paul's insider knowledge of these different Jewish groups, that enables him to really get right to the heart of the matter in a key moment when he's only going to have a couple sentences to say in front of them. So don't just study what, what Christians believe. Certainly study that. Study scripture, study theology to learn what Christians believe but also study what your friends believe and what your family believes. Get to know their religion or get to know their worldview. God will often use that knowledge to to open up doors for conversation and open up doors for consideration from your family and friends. The last implication I'll mention this morning that we learned from Paul and his example in this text is that we are to defend the gospel with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. That is, of course, what the Apostle Peter calls us to in that passage in 1 Peter 3. Give a defense for the hope that is in you, but do this what? With gentleness and respect. And Paul models that in these two trials. He calls the crowd brothers and fathers, family titles, in spite of the fact that they just tried to kill him. Brothers and fathers who just tried to murder me, I'm going to talk to you now in a gentle and calm tone. And then before the council, he calls them brothers twice. 
once before he's struck in the face, which is maybe a little easier to do, but then once again after he's hit in the face. Brothers. Now, Paul is human. So as we read, he snaps at the high priest. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite, in other words. But when it's then pointed out to Paul that he's reviled the high priest, he doesn't double down on that. He acknowledges, hey, I've crossed the line. I shouldn't have done that. He returns back to respectful dialogue. So we can learn, we should learn, all kinds of practical things from Paul's example before the crowd and before the council. But church, if you hear me say nothing else this morning, then hear me say this. The most important thing is not for you and I to mimic Paul's defense. It is to share Paul's hope. It's not to mimic Paul's defense. It's to share Paul's hope. Give a defense for the hope that is in you. And what specifically is Paul's hope? It's as he says there in chapter 23, verse 6, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That is the hope that is within Paul. Most specifically, the hope of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. See, this is the progression of the faith of the Jewish people. This is a hope meant for them. It's meant for them. It's meant for the people of God who have looked to the one true God for centuries. It's meant for them to see Jesus as the fulfillment and believe in him and enter in. It's been granted to them by the one true God. It was actually their father, Abraham, who so many centuries earlier offered up his promised son, Isaac. Why did Abraham offer up Isaac? As the author of Hebrews goes on to write, Abraham considered that God was even able to what? To raise him from the dead. So Abraham said, in other words, God, I have no idea what you're doing. You told me that I was going to have a massive family and that through me all the the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Now you're telling me to sacrifice that son, that son of the promise. But you know what, God? Even if you do take Isaac's life, I know you can raise him up. Now, unlike Isaac, Jesus' life was required. Jesus was offered up as a sacrifice. But in line with Abraham's ancient faith, God raised him up. God raised him up. And it is with respect to the hope of that resurrection that Paul gives a defense. Paul hangs his whole life on the resurrection of Jesus. The entirety of the Christian faith, he hangs it on that. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone in the world. He does not give us a backdoor exit from the resurrection. If it's true, we have all the hope in the world. If it's false, pity us more than you pity anyone else. If you want to give a defense for the hope that is in you, don't focus on the tactics and the skills of defending. Those are all well and good. Those are certainly worth emulating. But if you really want to be a person who gives a defense for the hope that is in you, focus on the hope. It's the hope that fuels this. And if, like Paul, you and I hang our whole life on Jesus' resurrection, if we know the only hope for the souls of the men and women we cross paths with is Jesus' resurrection, we will give a defense. We will give a defense, whether crowds or councils or just a friendly conversation with your coworker. When the hope of Jesus' resurrection is before your eyes, you can't help but do exactly what Paul does here and whenever he's on defense. Friends, the one true God, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. May Jesus' resurrection truly be your hope. And may you then give a defense for the hope that is in you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, you have raised up Jesus from the dead. And that faith of Abraham, knowing that God, when we don't know what you're doing, you still have that kind of power. We don't know what you were doing with Isaac, you still could raise him up. We rejoice to see the beauty of the continuity of your work in the world, Father. We rejoice to see the fulfillment of Jesus. That in so many ways, this was not new at all. And not novel, certainly. But just the fulfillment of the faith of those who had gone before. So help us to see the beauty of that. Help us to truly see all the fulfillment of Jesus. Help us to hang our whole lives on his resurrection from the dead. And I pray that in whatever moments that we are able to and are forced to or invited to give a defense for the hope that is in us, that that hope would fuel our defense. That even as we read earlier this morning, as we gathered, that your spirit would give us words in those moments and that we would give a true and faithful defense for the hope that really is there in us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we come to his table, as we see again his sacrifice. Fill us again with your grace. Send us out from this time together to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Pray all that to Jesus in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.